If you've never seen Exit Through the Gift Shop, or it's been a while, do yourself a favor and jump on in. It's a flat-out masterpiece that expanded the boundaries of what a non-fiction film can be. And if that isn't enough, it's directed by Banksy. Welcome back to The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. I'm Tiller Russell. Today's show is a conversation with Jamie DeCruz, producer of the film and Banksy's primary co-conspirator on the project. Let me summarize the movie here as a refresher. Once upon a time, there was a mad Frenchman who obsessively videotaped his entire life and whoever he happened to cross paths with. One day, he discovered the focus of his film, street artists. It was a pivot point that would change the course of his life and the history of art forever. When he trained his camera at street artists, he had no idea that one day he would meet Banksy and that Banksy would flip the script and turn the camera back on him, thereby creating the benevolent monster known as Mr. Brainwash. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Jamie DeCruz. So Jamie, so great to meet you and to have the opportunity to connect with you and discuss the movie. I rewatched it again last night um, after not having seen it, you know, since it had come out. And uh, it's just a, A, it's an absolute masterpiece. Two, it's um, still to this day, I think, so groundbreaking and cutting edge in terms of the form. And like, it's a perfect demonstration of how elastic the nonfiction medium can be. Um, and so thank you so much for being here. So, so psyched to have you. It was a pleasure to be here. And it's funny you say that you watched it to remind yourself about it because I haven't seen it for years. Um, and every time, every now and then I kind of start watching it again and it's too, it, it, it kind of puts me back in a place of uh, deep shock and uh, uh, not knowing what's going to happen next. It's almost like reliving the experience. So I always end up going and doing something else, but I, I kind of really should watch it again. Maybe I'll do that soon. I know exactly what you mean. Literally every time I finish a film, I've literally never gone back to revisit them. And if I like walk into a room when it's playing, the like PTSD begins and I'm like, I have to get the fuck out of here because I cannot possibly re-experience the, you know, the kind of horror and perils of, of uh, you know, the filmmaking process. It always is a, uh, it's always writing a bull. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so, I'm sure yeah, this it, one must, must have been particularly so. Yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, I mean, where do you begin? I mean, I'm sure you have your thoughts of where you want to begin, but like the actual experience was um, was such a kind of, looking back on it now, it feels like there was like life before exit and life after exit for me. It was quite a kind of a, a, a kind of gear change in, in, in several ways. But yeah, it was um, it was something that kind of came completely out of the blue and then went off on a, a bit like the film kind of comes out of the blue and went off on a path that no one expected. Well, and that's sort of, I think, one of both the joys and sometimes excruciating, you know, terrors of, of documentary filmmaking. I know I've never actually made the film that I set out to make. At a certain point, it tends to make a wild left or right turn. And then you either realize, OK, this is going to be a wild detour or else you, you know, abandon the movie usually is, is what I find. So it's interesting to hear that. So sort of setting the table. Um how does this begin, you know, for you and how does this project go from being a box of tapes 
you know, aggregated and amassed by sort of a madly obsessed, you know, Frenchman sitting in, you know, Tupperware containers or whatever to actually being transformed into a film. Is simple and straightforward. I can give you a concrete answer to that. So the beginning is um, a phone call um, from Banksy saying he wanted to talk to me about making a film. Um, and I was very excited thinking, wow, he, you know, this amazing, elusive, um, international dilettante is, uh, wants to make a film about himself. And he's chosen me to help him do that. That, that, that sounds great. Now, did you know him? Did you have any previous sort of contact with him or how did he get to you? I had a previous life um, running an underground music magazine before I became a filmmaker. And um, in my travels of knowing various interesting people, mainly music people, but kind of also people involved um, in the culture, I'd, I'd met him. Yeah, I'd met him. And he was a really interesting, young, not well-known known on the underground, but very much underground graffiti art. He was a graffiti artist. You know, that's what he was known as. I guess street art didn't really exist at that point. This was probably like the late nineties. It was, there was a kind of, you know, graffiti was still what kind of kids with aerosols did on, you know, train tracks and walls. Um, it wasn't in the galleries. It wasn't authorized. It wasn't nice. It hadn't become right. fine art yet. It hadn't become gentrified. It hadn't become, it hadn't been put inside the, uh, you know, the construct of, of the gallery system. And yeah, it hadn't become fine art. It was raw and, and, and illegal, you know, significantly. People often forget that small detail. It's a hugely important detail. You know, graffiti artists don't advertise what they do because they'll go to jail. So that initial phone call, the phone call comes in and like, what's the dialogue? What does he say? What do you say? What's running through your head in the moment? Well, it was really, um, it was as simple as uh, a call from someone I hadn't spoken to for a long time, probably 10 years or maybe nine or 10 years, saying uh, he had a really good idea for a film and would I like to talk to him about it and uh, maybe I could help him be involved. And, you know, I worked in, you know, I worked in the film, not the film world, I worked in the TV world. It's a very different world. I work in TV documentary Um it's a very different culture here. And I, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are in America, but, you know, just uh, without going into the boring detail of it, the culture of documentary in Britain and um, it, I think is very different to America. You know, we grew up on a culture of, 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 you know, serious films that are on television, you know, all the time. And um, so uh, and I think in the American system, it's much more about, you know, the cinemas, the theatres, you know, the theatrical. That is where that is where the, the, the documentary has really come into its own as a, as a new art form in the last 30 years or so. But I think for my, you know, I'm a guy working in television, making television documentaries, um, not planning or thinking or having any particular ambition or aspiration or expectation of making a, a cinematic release. So... Yeah, this call comes in. It's like this guy I knew a long time ago asking me if he if he uh, if, if he could have a chat with me about making a film. I was like, yeah, of course. By this point, he's really famous, I should add. You know, he's a really famous international artist now. Um, last time I saw him, he was like, you know, a kid with a hoodie and an aerosol can. And now he's like, you know, making headlines. So, yeah, of course, I was really interested and excited and kind of assumed he meant could I help him make a film about him? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, would have been very, very interesting. 
Um, or, or you know, I'll, I'll have a different answer to that now um, because because of the film we made. But he was adamant from day one. No, no, I've met I've met this French guy. He's really interesting. He's the guy we need to make a film about. Um, let's let's do it. Oh, interesting. So he came into it with the vision of this isn't a movie about me. This isn't a movie about street art per se. This is a movie about this lunatic who's been obsessively filming all this stuff. And he's actually the subject. So that was the that was the sort of intention setting sail and the vision going into it. Yeah, that's right. And 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 actually, and this might be like hugely disappointing for lots of people who think that there's this incredibly clever kind of uh, conspiracy behind the film, but it's as rich. If you watch the film, and I said earlier, I haven't watched it for a long time, but I do remember it. Um, if you watch the film, there's a point, a significant point in the film where the, the whole thing shifts in a different direction. Yep. And, uh, you know, Terry, the French guy, reveals his grand work, his big film. And everyone, there's a kind of a moment, um, what we might call a pressure drop moment, where the, what, the floor falls away and we suddenly realise, oh, right. You're, you've been hijacked by a madman. Yeah. So that point is the point I get the phone call. So, it's so really let me, let me, let me set the stage on that for our listeners. I don't mean to interrupt you, but just so that we're clear, that's Terry comes at this point and he's got his cut of the film. He wants to sit down and screen it for Banksy. And then it's like the bomb drops and you're like, wow, I'm in the hands of a, a, little, a little bit further on than that. I wasn't privy. I wasn't fortunate to be in that historical moment when Banksy watched that film for the first time. I would have liked to have been there. It would have been great to have that on camera. Um, but what I the, the the moment where I get involved is when Banksy has decided that he's going to distract Terry by turning him into an artist by telling him to go away and do an art show, while he has a look at the material to try and turn it into a film. So at this point, Banksy's genuine belief is that Terry is sitting on an absolute treasure trove, a decade of incredible footage of amazing artists captured at the moment of their birth as, you know, as um, great people who will live forever, but of course who, due to the nature of graffiti, are ephemeral. So he has got, in Banksy's mind, he's got this incredible treasure trove of a record of all this incredible art, these incredible people captured over a decade by this amazing French guy who, for reasons best known to himself, has decided to not create a film from what he's filmed. But of course, the rational, natural um, assumption and full expectation in Banksy's mind is, well, I'll just get hold of these tapes. I'll look at these watches and I'll make the film. Right. And, you know, and while I do that, let's see if, um, let's tell Terry to go off and do a little art show somewhere. So um, what about, what is that process in terms of, you know, when, and I'm sort of experiencing this, you know, with, with some things that I'm working on right now, but what is that process of extricating the tapes from Terry? I imagine that took some, some navigating to figure out how to do that, right? Like what is the process of actually like getting the stuff in hand and then sitting down and watching the rushes, watching the dailies. And then what's the sort of thought process from there? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a very, yeah, it's a very, very difficult process. It was very, very difficult to get Terry to give up his rushes. Um, And it wasn't, I think, you know, in a normal world, it would be because you haven't got a a contract with someone or there's not an agreement or he's not sure who's the editor is going to be, or there might be some kind of rational explanation why you wouldn't want to give up the rushes. But this was much, much, much more um, emotional and, and, and psychological and deep. 
And it was, I mean, I didn't know Terry at all at this point. When I met Terry very quickly. Um, in fact, my first, my initial skepticism, you know, I'm like, okay, so Banksy's obviously a smart guy. He's a really well-known artist. He's doing some really incredible work. If he's telling me this French guy is going to be worthy of a film, I'm sure he's got his reasons for thinking that. I don't know what those reasons are, but I'm kind of finding it hard to, to find that a credible um, starting point. But I met Terry and I was blown away by him and thought very quickly, because Banksy had also said this, like, we just need to get his tapes. And so that was really the conversation. Let's get your tapes. And the interesting thing was Terry didn't have any rational explanation or reason to not give us the tapes. In fact, he always agreed. Yeah, I will get you the tapes. I will have them to you tomorrow. They will be on a plane tomorrow. I will have my assistant send them. They will be on this flight number. Da, da, da. He, he, and, you know, I don't want to, I'm not, I wouldn't say that Terry was lying. I don't think he was consciously lying. I think he was saying what he wanted. Intended. Yeah, he was saying <clears throat> what he thought he ought to say. But I don't think he had any intention. I don't think he had any intention of, of giving us his tapes. So that was a long process, just getting his tapes from him. And so how do you finally do it? Like, what's the, what's the magic trick to actually acquire them finally? The thing is, Terry, when, you know, Terry's a lovely guy. Terry doesn't want to disappoint you. So if, you, if you're on the phone and you're in London and you're saying, Terry, where are those tapes? It's easy for Terry to say, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, my assistant, my assistant was supposed to send them. I found some more. He was all, that was it. He was always finding more. I was ready to send them, but then I found some more. Right. And this went on for weeks. So it's easy. I'm sitting in London. It's raining. It's cold. I'm talking to a guy in L.A. who's telling me something and it's not happening. So Banksy just sent one of his guys who knows Terry to L.A., and, you know, Terry, as I said, Terry's a lovely guy. Terry wasn't going to be horrible to someone or tell them to go away empty-handed. When the guy's there, he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll give you the tapes. But the thing about Terry is that, as you know from watching the film, he has a very deep and complex re- emotional relationship with those physical tapes. Sure. And for similar reasons, uh, he was, um, he didn't know how many he had. He didn't know where they were. So it was hard for him to say, okay, I'll put them in a box and I'll give them to you because there was always more. There was always a reason why they weren't ready to go. And part of that reason was that in a kind of funny way, I think Terry was trying to do his job very properly and he knew that he'd promised to give us his tapes. So until he had all of them, he couldn't give them to us, but he was never going to have all of them. So by definition, they would never come to us. So it had to be kind of extricated in a kind of, look, we're coming to get them, we'll see you tomorrow and then we're going to take, take them to London. And it's, it's much it's much harder to say no in person when somebody's actually sort of standing there and walking through your house. And and so I want to rewind for a second to, uh, you know, your what you described as your first impressions of Terry. When you first meet this guy, uh, you know, one thing that I have remarked upon before is that docs need stars just like feature films need stars. And he is such an engaging and sort of fascinating, uh, idiosyncratic, obsessive, you know, multi-layered character. Did you, did the light bulb go off? Like as soon as you meet him, like this guy's worthy of a movie. hundred uh, percent. Absolutely. hundred percent. He was immediately, uh, and almost ridiculously brilliant on camera to the point that I mean, I've never, you know, I've made a lot of films. I made a lot of documentaries and, you know, you build relationships. Sometimes people turn out being great to be great, but you have to go through a, you have to woo them. You have to get to know them. You have to spend a long time sometimes just hanging out with them. Terry was immediately on 
from like the moment I met him. In fact, it was even more extraordinary because the moment I met him, my camera was rolling. I met him coming out of um, passenger arrivals at Heathrow Airport with my camera rolling. He'd never met me. I think Banksy had told him some guy is going to be there to meet you. He might be filming. I think he might have warned him. But Terry was literally, not only was he on in the, in the sense that he was on camera, he was on. His character was on. His character isn't a character. His character is just who he is. And he's always like that. He's completely and utterly um, relentless. He's always, always like that. I think maybe sometimes I've seen him tired. Mm-hmm. But he's always really engaged, talking a lot, um, saying lines that it's like he's got a comedy writer living in his head, writing the lines that he then says because the way he, his diction, and you know, there is a kind of a Inspector Clouseau comedy sure. of, the, of, the, of the French way of, the mannerism and the, 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 the way of speaking is it's charming and it's engaging and, it's, and it is funny, but he is really funny. He's a really funny, often in a very innocent, um, which makes it even funnier. Not that you're laughing at him, because I don't think anyone's laughing at Terry. He's just genuinely saying things that sound extraordinary because they are, those kind of observations that almost like a child would make, but they're coming from this man with mutton chops and a hat and they're funny. So he, yeah, he, he was immediately, immediately, I I could immediately see within a minute of meeting him. Oh, maybe Banksy has got a point. Maybe this French man that no one's ever heard of could be someone that we might want to watch. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's also fascinating that that initial meeting, as you describe it, is in a fundamental sense, a dose of his own medicine, right? I mean, Terry had spent his entire life shoving a camera on everyone he had ever met. And then suddenly that's the moment when the direction of the film and and sort of the undertaking itself begins to Mm -hmm. fundamentally change from filmmaker to subject, from you know, object to, uh, or the transformation into the object of a film, which is in many ways what the film is about, right? Correct. Yeah. He, um, he doesn't see, uh, I think the normal filters and, uh, kind of protocols and also in a kind of way, good manners that people have, which is often about kind of, you know, how we, how we navigate those kind of complicated social relationships. There's none of that. They don't exist with Terry. So he doesn't think as he doesn't think it's, um, rude to walk up to you with a camera rolling. Um, and when people behave as if that is rude, he is upset and, you know, he doesn't, and then he, he, he talks to them more uh, and, and kind of, you know, we see, in the, we see it in the film, we see him walking up to people, just talking to random strangers, some of them celebrities, people that definitely don't want a camera put in their face. He's just brilliant at that because he's not operating on the normal rules. He's not un- operating under normal operating procedures. He's got his own Terry operating procedures and it, it's very odd to see him do that. But I think for that reason, he has a charm that... You know, it's like when a kid says, uh, you know, says, why is that man fat? You know, people laugh. People don't think that kid's being rude. That kid's just been a kid. And it's a bit like that with Terry. He just gets away with things because he's not judged by the normal criteria. He does get judged. I think when people get to know him and they've spent a long time with him, they, they can be irritated by him. But he's when you meet him to begin with, and most people meet him, you know, a crazy French guy walking down the street, filming them for two minutes. It's funny. 
Well, it's fascinating. What that brings up for me is I had sort of two very striking similar experiences when I was making the 7.5 or Precinct 7.5, as it was called when it was released in the UA, in the UK. It was the same experience meeting Michael Dowd at the center of it. Here's this guy, this sort of cop that's been marauding his way through New York and just served 11 and a half years in the federal pen. And yet there was this weird childlike quality to him. And then, you know, the same thing happened to me making Operation Odessa. Here's this Russian gangster in a Panamanian prison that I'm meeting, and yet mm. for whom the filters of ordinary behavior don't apply. And, and I think, like, as filmmakers, that's often what we're looking for because it's outside of the range of normal human experience. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of a bit like you said earlier um, that we don't, well, I think that no one, well, hopefully no one makes the film they set out to make because, you know, you kind of want to, especially in documentary, you know, it's not scripted. You don't know where you're going. And, you know, it's to the, it's to the, to the cost of good documentaries that increasingly we're asked to write the beginning, middle and end and, and know exactly what's, what's going to happen. But I just think to go to your point, it's um, those characters that you find uh, that, that strike you as worthy of having a film made about them are quite rare. And I think like the guy you're talking about and certainly with Terry, it feels that you, it feels like you've kind of almost been blessed by this. It's like, it's like that, you know, the gods of, of film or documentary or whatever factual filmmaking have kind of thrown someone in your path. And, uh, and your job is to kind of capture that person and to, and to tell a story about them, which really, I guess is there, you know, reflects who they are and tells tells us about who they are. And of course, if they're, um, you know, a boring guy who works in a bank and, uh, you know, has the same sandwich every day, he's not going to be a subject of a documentary film because their life isn't that interesting. And that's just a fact. And I think people like Terry are very rare because, you know, I think it's different with, with cops or with a lot of people I make films with, uh, they often tend to be criminals in a kind of mm -hmm. low level way, um, yep. often quite an interesting way, but you know, they're characters and they, they're used to kind of like having different realities for, for the situations they're in. Um, we very rarely come across someone with that. Uh, I mean, I, I've called Terry in the past, I call him um, an ingenue, which I think is a, I think when I use that word, I know what I mean. I'm not sure if it means this, but it, it's that kind of childlike innocent that there's nothing, there's no, we have a phrase in, in England. I'm not sure if you use this phrase. We say someone has no side to them. It means, it means that, that no they're contrivance. Just, no yeah, contrivance. They're just, they're just pure and straight and almost, um, I mean, I, I keep using the word childlike, but that almost sounds like like a like like a way of talking down about someone. I don't mean it like that. It's just a, it's just a pure innocence, um, and it doesn't mean that they have to be a saint uh, or that they are not going to do bad things. Sometimes it just means that the intention behind their actions is 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 what you see. It's what you see is what you get. There's not other stuff going on, and that's really unsettling for us. It's you know we we, we we've grown up in a culture and a world, and you know, and as a species, you know all the very complex things we've evolved to, to navigate our way through, you know, to lying to people or cheating or, you know, saying things that we kind of think are true, but we know, you know, all of those clever, sophisticated things we do as, as humans. There are very few people like Terry, I think, who, who don't do that. Well, who aren't dissembling, who aren't, you know, who are unrelentingly themselves and uh, aren't wearing the masks that we all sort of take on and put off, you know, in, in the rest of our lives. So cut to the moment when you finally get the tapes. There's hundreds, thousands of hours of footage. You begin popping those tapes in. And what do you find? Um, we find lots of surprising footage in the sense of 
it's really surprising because there's not really anything there. So we were kind of, you know, I think the first consignment was something like a thousand tapes and my very, very um, lucky uh, hire of Chris King, the genius editor, who I think started off, and I think Chris said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll have a look. This sounds, in, I, I quite like that artist. Yeah, he sounds interesting. I'll have a look. And I think we had four weeks or six weeks. You know, that's what we had down as, uh, we'll, we'll just go through, we'll see what's there. And I think very quickly it became apparent that there was nothing. I think probably the first two or three tape, maybe the first two or three tapes Chris put in, he might have thought that was a mistake or they'd just been rolled on and, you know, chucked in. But I think very quickly, I mean, it was a combination of the fact there's not really anything on any of the tapes. None of them are labelled. None of them have uh, any, in, you know, there's no kind of logic to anything. So I think very quickly we got this, we got a clear sense that something something was afoot and we weren't so quite sure what. Did, did it knock the wind out of your sails? Did you feel like, holy shit, I've gone to the end of the earth to do this and now like I don't necessarily have a movie or like what's the what's the reaction in the moment? It, yes, that 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 was kind of our reaction that we didn't know where we were going, but we kind I think we just assumed we'd get there soon. Mm-hmm. I think oh 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 the first four takes were were terrible. There was nothing on them. Uh, well, I'm I'm sure the next lot will be good. And where's the know, good stuff? Yeah, yeah. And then like week two, week three, and you know I think probably even Chris was assumed. I think we we didn't assume immediately that Terry hadn't filmed anything. I think what we assumed. Um, in, uh, to begin with was that there was loads of good shit coming. We just hadn't quite got there yet. Or, you know, for example, you could hear a really interesting conversation in the background on the tape. So you could roll the tape, but you would be looking at um, someone's shoe. You could hear some like four guys and you, and you couldn't like, and Chris would be like, hang on a minute. I think that's fail talking to shepherd fairy, or I think that's swoon talking to space invader. Like these were like, I you know, and like, Amazing. you know, we didn't know these people at that, but we were kind of finding out about these people and, you know, oh, there'd be an exhibition, you know, there'd be an exhibition of a, of a swoon exhibition in Paris and it would be, you know, one camera rolling for, you know, the whole tape and then the next tape would be the continuing of that. But nothing happened. No one's asking any questions. No one's doing, there's not, it's not even a good frame. It's not even an interesting frame. So I think sometimes we assume, oh, that was probably a mistake, but the other camera, the A camera must have been on the conversation or the A camera must have been roaming around asking people questions or whatever. But in fact, that was the A camera. The A camera right. Was, right. was the B camera. <laughs> he was shooting everything, which was essentially nothing. So so how, like, what is the next step from there when you're sort of determining the, you know, the process? Is it, okay, now we're going to have to shoot interviews to find a spine to the story and, uh, and, or, you know, the journey that he ends up taking in terms of his transformation into Mr. Brainwash, suddenly then there is change happening in real time, which can be captured. Talk about the different constituent elements, which are Terry's tapes, interviews, and Terry's life. Yeah. So two, two really different things are going on. Um, so we got the tapes and maybe six weeks later or something, we were like, okay, these tapes, are, there's a problem here. There's a problem. Here. However, there is something else going on here that is quite interesting. And this, I have to say, you know, Chris King uh, was really kind of driving that. Chris King was spending hour after hour, day after day on his own, largely, you know, I'd be in and out, but he'd largely be on his own. And he had a kind of a, a kind of a, a kind of shell shocked look on his face, but also quite intrigued. Like he could tell there was, something really interesting he just couldn't quite put his finger on it so he was like 
what Chris was doing, he was trying to, he was kind of building a picture of, for example, early on, Chris, in fact, this is, this is one of those memories. I've just had this recollection. Early on, Chris said, Jamie, I've just found this tape where um, Terry's talking to his cousin. He's on a holiday in the basement in France and he's talking to this guy and his guy and, and his cousin just admitted that he's space invader. And, and Chris is like, but we, it's, it's mad. It's like, he's, he, it's the moment. And Chris, I, I think more than I did, Chris realized this was like the kind of the foundation moment of Terry. This was, this was, and we, this is a big moment in the film. This is where this aimless middle-aged guy, well, you know, in his thirties guy, Finds, finds a world that becomes his world that he wants to document. And this we've got it on tape. It's incredible. The other thing that is completely separate to that is this art show in LA is, is, is kind of gearing up. So the plan was um, I was going to go and film the art show. Chris was going to edit the, the footage or the, on Terry's tapes. So, you know, within a few months, uh, we'd have a little film about Terry's, interesting art show that would probably be in a coffee bar somewhere and Chris would have had uh, maybe you know we thought and I think um, Banksy actually used the words um, you know we might have something decent for a 10 minute cut on YouTube from you know even if even if it's just that he just you know Banksy loves the art you know Banksy's about the artist and the art he just wanted to see this art that had you know gone and that we were incredibly fortunate also he thought to have on tape so that was the process Chris was going to cut this thing and I was going to go and film the show and, you know, maybe the two would come together. Some We hadn't really thought that far ahead, but actually what was happening was the tapes were going on a steeply downward trajectory of reality because there was nothing on them at all, like nothing. And then the show was, was spiraling out of control. The show was becoming like something that, you know, PT Barnum would have staged. It was like this thing that like, right was genuinely like no one had planned or thought of happening. And I think there's a moment in the film when Banksy says, you know, I thought he might go and have a little, you know, uh, rent a little art gallery, you know, have a few glasses of wine for his friends. Um, and it was becoming this kind of unbelievable spectacle. So I kind of went off and started filming that. We had some guys actually in LA who were kind of documenting that. So yeah, um, those two things were happening. And then the third thing, the interviews, that, that was a bit later on. We weren't really, I was interviewing people. I was just making a film about an art show thinking this is we really weird because um, it's, you know, and I kind of, I'd, you know, I'd cleverly worked out the end of the film, which of course was completely wrong. The ending of the film was going to be, oh man, poor Terry, he's a lovely guy. He's doing this art show. It's going to be a terrible disaster. No one's going to turn up and he's going to feel completely, you know, disheartened but he can go back to his old life boom the end not the best film in the world maybe not even you know maybe we won't make that film but you know that's that's the story that was when you that was what was in your head right yeah and as doc you know and and, and I, ha I hate the kind of you know the, the the sort of faux kind of you know i'm not trying to inject any kind of importance in what we do but you know as people that make documentary films all, you know all we really do is film what's happening you know that's really what we do you know and, you know, you obviously edit it and make it a better story than if you're just looking with your eyes at the world, which is what Terry does. You know, our job is to make this seem like, you know, some kind of a story. But that was the story. The story was this guy was going to have an art show and it was probably going to be a bit shit and his, his art might not sell very well. And But hey, he's not an artist. He's just a guy. 
Why should you know? It was an experiment in art. It wasn't. It wasn't like for him to become a, a, a big a big street art guy. So as that begins to sort of spiral out of control, because I think one of the fascinating things about this is it becomes a Frankenstein story, right? In a way, Banksy unleashes this guy on sort of what was, you know, everyone thought is, okay, this is a bullshit errand. We're sending him on so we can go through the, the footage. And then it, it, it sort of grows into this thing, which is beyond everyone's control and far exceeds everyone's expectations and becomes this sort of crazy phenomenon. So. So talk about the next sort of breakthrough or the next phase in it when it's like, are you shooting the interviews along the way or, and when do you decide to shoot Banksy? When do you decide to, you know, how do you decide, okay, wait a minute, this is the spine of the film that I'm actually making. So the, um, it's a really good question and there's not even, there's not really an answer. I mean, there's many different kinds of answers and there's so much of this film, so much of this film is complete fluke and just, weird chance and you know um and things that we hadn't really thought would happen that we sort of put together but i guess you know to answer that question specifically it's well it's very hard to explain it but um i guess it was um we were kind of like losing our way a bit because we didn't really know what was going to go on with this art show and chris king uh was steadily and like chris is amazing he was like he's um he's got an incredible mind that remembers unbelievable shit so like he could watch a tape on a tuesday in march that on a thursday in june he finds the other half to and he actually reckon like he would go oh i remember that tape and he was steadily logging cattle he wasn't logging the contents he was just remembering and watching and making notes so he would find mm-hmm. he was he was kind of piecing together you know and i have again i have to say chris takes so much credit for this because he was piecing together this the true story of what the tapes show and the true story of what the tapes show is Terry's life over a very long time when many things happen, many of them not interesting to us, not going to be in the film, you know, uh, an uncle's tea party or a daughter's birthday, not that interesting, but there are some key moments. So what Chris was doing was he was kind of plotting. We should talk to invader about when this happened. Someone needs to get Terry to sit down and explain what he was doing when he was making those tapes. You know, so Chris was almost kind of like scripting the, not, not the interview, but the beats. He was kind of working out. These are, this is what, this is the story the tapes are telling us. So these are the things that Terry needs to talk about. And interestingly, when you think about it that way, that immediately explains in a way that I can, I, you know, um, I find it incredible, but you know, that people think we're so clever that we recreated with our art department, um, you know, the photocopy store in on Sunset in 1998, and we recreated it to look like it was 1998. And then we shot a scene where someone who looks like Terry, but 10 years younger, meets someone who looks like Shepard Ferry, who's also 10 years younger. You know, it's so much, you know, you know Occam's razor, you know, the, the, the principle of the, the simplest thing is the truth. It's so much simpler, the truth, which is that Terry walked into, a, uh, into the photocopy place and met this guy who was called Shepard Terry. He didn't know him. Started chatting to him. And that was the beginning of a 10-year relationship. And yeah, we've got it on amazing. tape. We've got it on tape. But that looks like clever filmmaking as opposed to, oh, we found it on tape. So let's ask Terry about the first time he met Shepard Ferry. And that, you know, Chris was literally anything interesting, significant in, in the evolution of Terry's um, documentary, documentary career, remember, not artist career. This was his career as a documentary filmmaker. 
that how did this guy go from being a French guy with a shop to the uh, the uber documenter of this of this uh, incredible street art world? Well, let's tell that story, and that's where. So we were thinking all, all along the way, you know, if we know this happened, then we're going to need to ask Terry this. We're going to need to ask Shepard that. We're going to need to ask Space Invader this. We're going to need to, you know, there were various people that we were going to ask the question to. Banksy was net was not a part of that plan in terms so, of the film. Okay, so that that's you, you just beautifully, I think, articulated the the genius of what a great editor can do, right? Which is from this mass of sort of unformed material, it's seeing the architecture of a potential story, which is inherent in the material, but not necessarily explicit until you remove everything. Um, you know, somebody once said to me, how do you make a guitar? Well, you cut, take a piece of wood and cut away everything that doesn't look like a guitar. And, 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 and like, that's what a great editor really does is here's the story hidden within this. And then here's what the material is whispering to us to do. Now it's find the connective tissue and the voice that's going to, you know, the, the necessary interview component that will bolt point A into point B. Exactly that. And, 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 and to be really honest, I found the prospect of all these hundreds and hundreds and, you know, maybe a thousand or 1200 tapes that were unlabeled and we didn't really know. Like, I found that daunting. I found that not at all something that I wanted to spend time watching or investing, you know, kind of brain energy. And it was just, it was just daunting and, and horrific. And Chris just like kind of took it on like a kind of, you know, like he's like that guy in, in the serial killer movie that's kind of tracking the serial killer and he's putting the clues on the wall. And he just did that. And, and I think you're right. And it, it is testament to, I mean, really, um, Chris's uh, skill and patience in doing that. And also humor. Chris is a really funny guy. He he, he sees f- fun all the time. He sees, he sees the humor in things. So he could sort of put the story together in a way that was both interesting and compelling, but also funny. It was a funny story. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. So the so from there, like now let's jump into the the interviews. You're shooting interviews along the way, which you think are about one subject. And then at a certain point, Chris is like, no, no, wait a minute. We need to connect this to that. And your light bulb goes off. And now are you are you reshooting interviews with people that you've already shot? Or is it this is new material that's connective tissue? Question A. It, it, it's 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 much simpler than that. So basically, I'm I'm out. I'm in America. I'm in LA. I'm sh- I'm not there for that long. I, I arrive maybe a week before the show goes up. Life is beautiful. Um, this huge warehouse is like crawling with like you know, it looks like a, a shoebox with ants all over it. It's this huge warehouse with hundreds of people putting up art everywhere, and it's completely out of control. And it makes no sense because no one's ever heard of this guy. So so that's going on, and I'm just I'm just filming that, and I'm talking to people and making friends with somebody who worked for him and chatting to his wife and going to the house and having dinner and just filming and talking to people, you know, um, uh, Deborah, Terry's wife, who's, she's in the film very, very uh, momentarily, fleetingly, but she, I've talked to her for ages on camera and um, she was fascinating actually. Um, so yeah, those are, those are normal documentary interviews in the moment, stuff's happening. Uh, then there's a whole nother class of interviews, which is, you know, Terry was not filmed until, a good six months later, um, Shepherd Ferry, I think, was probably also. Um, I, I, I think there's 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 moments you see Shepherd Ferry at the show. That's me um, shooting him. One thing as well, I, was, I, was, I, I think this is really funny. I think that the film, although I, I agree and I and I know it's a it's a great film, it's an, it's an amazing story, but it looks terrible. The whole film looks awful, and I I, I kind of like that because it's just 
Um, and also, I'm not a I'm not a great cameraman. You know, I'm I make I'm from an era of documentary when it's all about you know um, it's all content, not style. You know, now I think style is so important. And good films have style and content. They look beautiful and they're great stories as well. You know, um, and like it was punk. Yeah. It was so punk rock, though. I think that's yeah. like what's so noticeable. It's like this movie is so punk rock from the you know the opening title sequence where you're using the smaller frame size within it, and you're like, wait, this is my TV fucked up, or does the footage actually like seem sort of like lo-fi and it's degraded? It's on YouTube, and, the, and it's so bad, bad. resolution. Like you blow it up anymore, and you just can see pixels moving around. You know, I mean, it's terrible. Um, but it's yeah I mean it's kind of needs must isn't it and you know we were I was there filming we had all these other guys that were kind of friends or friends of friends that they were all filming um, some of them we I was talking no so there were all these people that were kind of involved that were kind of part of the film um, that I was talking to and some of those people are in the film you know Roger Gassman for example you know there's stuff that's happening in the moment and that's just basic documentary stuff um, and then and then um, you know um, ironically of course and 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 uh, for me, evidence that our film isn't a conspiracy is it's because it's so funny is when Terry falls off the ladder and breaks his leg. The amazing. one thing, the one thing we don't have on camera, although amazingly, we have got it on stills. So I, right. I mean, I love I the stills, by the way, those the, the, the there were a couple of like just super elegant moments where you and that in particular, it was so kind of arresting to see that those images in the progression of it in sequence like that. It was just really uh just him mm. and, and and very effective, you know. Um, so this, let's talk about the the sort of second layer of interviews that you were alluding to. So when you decide, okay, now we're going to go sit down and do the formal interviews with Terry, with Shepard Ferry, with Banksy. What is that process? Who's conducting those interviews? How do you sort of prep for them? And how far along are you in the edit when you shoot those? Um, we are probably, I don't know, six months in by now. So life is beautiful. The show has happened. We're all pretty much aware that the rushes are not yielding any treasure anytime soon. The, the treasure they're yielding is treasure, but it's not what we were expecting. It's odd. It's weird. It's not, you know, it's not the story of street art. Let's put it that way. Um, so maybe, yeah, this, I'd say this is like six months in and we are, uh, talking about what we're going to ask Terry, what we're going to ask uh, Space Invader, um, various other people. There's not, there's not actually that many interviews. I mean, there's, there's actually a lot in the prep for this film. I, I had, I was full of amazing ideas for all these incredibly interesting things that were going to be in there. Not, of course, not a frame of it's in there. You know, interviews with art dealers and Sotheby's people and criminal barristers that could tell us about the, you know, the law you break when you paint on someone's house. All of this stuff that gone finished out like just not even i mean chris was barely even watching this stuff because you know and this was i think you know the instinct that you have as a as a documentary guy and that chris definitely had is like this is our film now like i don't care about that stuff like yeah it was, it was a good idea to do it but no one cares about the interview with a guy who's a flipper who made 200 grand by buying and selling paintings it's just not interesting so you know we kind of um there was a couple, there was a few people in LA that I that I spoke to when I was there. And then the main interviews, I, I mean, I guess really like like the big interview that really kind of anchors us through the whole film is Banksy. And he was never going to be in the film. That was not, that was very late. That was a very late addition because he had no interest. Um, he had no interest in being in the film and he didn't want to really be a he didn't think he needed to be a part of it. Um, and also uh, you know, 
you said earlier, and it's very true that you know documentaries need need stars too. You know, we need we need our stars, and Terry is a star. And I think Banksy's genius in what he saw in Terry all those years ago, which again is is documented in the film. All those years ago, when of all the people, which I think is the is the funniest thing about the whole film, it's not even kind of an overtly stated joke, but of all the people that this absolute international master of an anonymity would allow to, to follow him. This is the guy? This is right. the guy. Like, I mean, come on. And, you know, and I think, um, so, so we've, so the point I was going to say is that what the genius of Banksy in Spotting Terry was, at last we have our star. And by we, he didn't mean our film, he meant our movement. Our movement, street art or graffiti art, has has a, a frontman, a frontman who is a kind of, he's like a rock star. He's funny. He's interesting. Everyone loves him. He's, he's got credibility. He, he can carry a can. He can run up a ladder. He can go on the roofs. He can risk his life like all, like we all do, but, but he's nice and he's funny. He's interesting. Unlike us. And, you know, and Banksy is very self-deprecating like that, you know, unlike us, us, this lonely breed, you know, these, these nocturnal men who, skulk around in hoodies and you know wait until there's nobody there and then they go and do their work in the dead of night and then they disappear without a trace and remember you know now Banksy being anonymous is a really big deal about him that's the main thing people know but it was just what you did like everyone was anonymous because you didn't want to get arrested he just took it to the next level because of his you know and his fame uh, kind of intersecting with the rise of the internet and social media and all of these things you know these 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 are just things that happened but I think the genius of seeing Terry as the star meant that Banksy was reluctant to be in the film because he didn't want it to be a film about him. So did you, like, what is that process? Do you have to kind of horse whisper him to the table in, in the <clears throat> sense of like, hey, this is important and why? Like, do you have to sell him on it? And what is that process? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting, I've never really thought of it that way. I think, I think thinking about it now, I think it genuinely was, you know, he's a really smart guy. And he, I think he just realized that, look, we're telling a story and this guy, Terry, he's, it's a story about Terry. He's the main, he's our, he's our, he's our protagonist. But in order to tell his story, a lot of people are going to talk to us about Terry because they figure in these important points that we are telling through the, through the rushes, through these thousands of hours that Terry filmed over a decade. And, you know, you're in that, you know, you are one of those people. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, kind of some of the, you know, people like, I know, Borf or pe- people like really underground people that have never done interviews or like, you know, we, we need people to kind of come out of the woodwork and talk to us as much as they as they could. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were just on the rushes and we'd get a, we'd get a comment or we'd get a, you know, we'd get a funny little uh, exchange, you know, while they're having a cigarette waiting for, the, you know, waiting for the, the sun to go down or whatever. Um, but I think there are key people. Shepard Ferry was certainly one. Space Invader was definitely one. Banksy undoubtedly was an important one. You know, these were the key people who would help us understand the story and the way that Terry traded his way up, perhaps unknowingly, you know, I mean, some people think he's 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 clever and, does, and did this kind of on purpose. I think he just did it innocently or un, unwittingly. But he did, if you look at it kind of coldly, he went from his cousin, who becomes a big street art guy, to Shepard Ferry, who is like the biggest street art guy, and then to the new, this kind of rising king. And, and you know, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing kind of, you know, progression. 
And so you needed those three people. You, they had to be in it. And I think um, I think Banksy realised in a good way that he, um, or in a positive way, that we weren't trying to get, we weren't, no one was trying to trick him to be in this film. I mean, apart from anything, it was his film. So like, you right. know, nothing's coming out without it, without his say-so. Blessing and yeah. But you also have to kind of like, you kind of have to fall into the pool. You have to kind of let yourself go and like immerse yourself and, and see what happens and you know, let the waters wash over you and, and tell your truth, tell your story. And, and, you know, to his credit, it was hard to, it was hard, but he did it. So next piece I want to talk about, which is the, the sort of next layer coat of paint that gets put on in some way or another is talk about the voiceover, the decision to use voiceover, the writing of the voiceover, mm. the performance, and when that mm. happens in the construction of the film. That's a really difficult question to answer because I'm trying to remember now what, well, I think, okay. So I guess in, in the culture of documentary, the kind of, uh, there's a snobbiness about voiceover. So none of us would dream, of course, of having voiceover because voiceover is for TV and it's for, you know, kind of explaining things to people who, you know, like those of us who think of ourselves as artists, we want to trust our audience. We don't want to dumb things down. We don't want to talk down. We don't want to patronize. And also you want to let the, the, the you want to let your, your characters and your, your footage tell the story. But guess what? That couldn't happen in this because the story was too crazy. It, it needed someone to sit you down and say, once upon a time, there was a little boy who lived in the forest and his name was, and off you go. You know, it needed a storyteller. And actually, one of the brilliant things about Banksy is that he doesn't come to documentary filmmaking with any of that kind of knowledge or um, assumption or prejudice of, oh, you can do this and you can't do that. Oh, you wouldn't do that. Oh, you should do this. He's like, whatever it takes. Unpol- no, unpolluted by the constraints or traditions or whatever of the medium. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in the future doc world, you know, it, it's her, it's horrendous. You know, it's almost like, it's, it's like, the, yeah, right. it's like Bob Dylan plugging in the guitar, right? It's like, you just don't do that. And if you do it, you're a bad person and, or, or you're just a bit of a stupid person. You don't understand what you're doing, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, there's no better explanation. There's no clever explanation other than it just needed a storyteller. And, you know, uh, so we got a good storyteller. How much writing and rewriting was there in terms of, fi- because I think one of the reasons why it's so effective is the tone is pitch perfect. It's familiar. It's playful. It's also authoritative when it needs to be it, it, like you're playing in a lot of keys with it. So landing that, the writing of it, what, how did how did you get there? Um, I think it was a collaborative effort, but Banksy was kind of probably the lead because he's, uh, he's very funny. Um, he's a very good writer. Um, I mean, if you've read any of his books, you know, like, uh, Wall and Peace, I mean, he's just funny and, you yeah. know, it's, it's almost like a, it's a ridiculous thing to say, but lots of people say, you know, if he hadn't been a, an illegal street artist, he would have been a, a copywriter and he would have probably been the most successful advertising man in the history of advertising. He, he's just great with a one-liner. So he was, but also we didn't want the film to be in his voice because it's mm-hmm. not his authored story. It's a film mm-hmm. in which he is a character. So it wouldn't have been appropriate for him to be telling it in, like he's, he's, a, he's, he's a contributor in the film. And so he, we hear him talking about himself and about Terry and about what was happening. So we don't want to then hand that over. That's another reason why we had to hand over to a storyteller, to a, a neutral, um, you know, what we call a voice of God, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a non-religious sense that it's all seeing eye that just tells you the story. And um, I think I wrote a lot of it with Chris wrote a lot and Banksy, I think 
funnily enough, now maybe I haven't thought of this before. I think mine and Chris's and Banksy's sense of humor is quite similar. And there's a like Banksy's a genius with like he would just get something in one line, mm-hmm. stick and, it. And I, yeah, but also I think I, if I remember right, I think there was there, there was a little bit of reining back on that because we didn't want it. To, we didn't want to make it like. Um, like you know, full of comedy one-liners. We right. it's, it's you didn't like, want it. Didn't it couldn't seem overproduced or arch. Exactly, and you, and you don't want to kind of you don't you know you kind of want to let the rushes speak themselves. And the, the humor really comes from what Terry did and who Terry is and and those incredible things that we have on camera. You know, that's really where the humor comes from. So we don't need to overreg it. We don't need to kind of dial it up to eleven. Um, and I think probably the script. Um, I don't know if I looked at the script now, I would probably recognize. My work, Banksy's work, Chris's. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a fascinating. I want to just sort of make this point, or, or or talk briefly about this point. But in a fundamental sense, what you're exploring is the authorial voice and who is authoring what, right? Mm. Who's filmmaker? Who is subject? What's the sort of lines of demarcation, separation? How fluid are they? Are the boundaries or porous are the boundaries? And it's fascinating to hear that your process, um, the sort of collaborative nature of the process, whether it's Chris's instincts in the edit, your instincts on the ground shooting and who you're shooting with, Banksy's instinct about voiceover, not voiceover. It really is this um it's the, it's a sort of like great collective mind at work mm. it's it's also the kind of thing that could have ended up as an un, unholy mess right mm-hmm. i mean it's like it's like it's both greater than some of its parts but also kind of a bit of a kind of you know towering act where it kind of just works but i guess one thing not working would have made the whole thing collapse and and i think you put your finger on it in the sense by saying that I think, you know, great teamwork and great collaboration looks brilliant with hindsight. But at the time, it's just people doing stuff that they think, oh, well, let's try this because we, we don't really know. It's not that we don't know what we're doing. We do know what we're doing, but we don't really know where it's going. That like, there's no end in sight in terms of like, this is going to come out. It's going to be at Sundance. It's going to be an amazing film that everyone is going to like see as a clever comment on art. It wasn't. It was literally, there's this amazing French guy He's brilliant. Everyone loves him. Let's make a film about him becoming an artist. And while he's doing that, let's see what he's got in his camera because he's got a decade of incredible shit that we'll never see the likes of ever again. And that's what we set out to do. Well, the path is only evident in retrospect, right? Like when you're stumbling along, hopping from one stone to another, you don't see where it is only when you're sort of sitting there at Sundance and you're like, ah, so that's how we got here. So, um, so I want to sort of finish with, um, the um, bringing the film into the world and the sort of like surreal afterlife reactions, conspiracy theories, like in, in sort of brief or, or what sticks with you now all these years later of what, what happened and why did it happen like that? I mean, it's really hard to answer that because it's just, it, um, well, I mean, I, I guess the most important thing to say is that it, it took us by surprise. <laughs> you know, we weren't, I think I think you know people have got this really bizarre um, idea of like for example people also they all say uh, oh yeah well you know, you know Banksy's like the arch prankster right and it's like yeah yeah he, and it's like, he's not a prankster he's an, he doesn't do pranks he's an art, he's an artist he does like clever stuff and puts on interesting shows and does things that people might not expect but he, he doesn't hoodwink and hoax people that's that's not what he does not that there's anything wrong with that so what we thought we had I guess we were quite 
it took a long time. It, it, it took quite a long time to make this film. And then we thought, this is a really good film. It's really interesting because the other thing that I guess was quite powerful for us was that, and this is really unusual, because, you know, when you make a film, lots of people are involved and then you're in the edit and then an exec comes to see it and then the commissioning guy from the channel comes to see it and then, you know, or if you're making it for theatrical, a bunch of people that are invested, you know, it's like a kind of, it's a, a kind of a dance that's a little bit done in public. Um, and this wasn't that because it was Banksy. So no one was allowed anywhere near the edit. No one knew there was an edit. There was no edit. There was just something, there was a room with a locked door. And so it kind of emerged almost fully formed. And I think that was quite shocking. And it was shocking for us because we were in there, you know, we hadn't seen the wood for the trees. And, 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 and it's interesting because I say that this was a long time. In my mind, it was years and years and years. It wasn't that long, actually. It was like probably the bulk of it, really like that film was pretty much from beginning to end was pretty much a year. And it was probably- Wow, I yeah. can't believe that. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like a film that probably took six or seven years to make and it kind of went through different, but it was, there's there's a really interesting thing that Chris said that, that um, I've, I've never really forgotten this. It's a, it's a very sort of, it's a kind of interesting, it's almost like a, a philosophical comment, but, and I think, and it's true, which is, and it was at a Q&A, we, we did a lot of Q&As in America, me and Chris were going to New York and LA all the time, it was really exciting for us. No, we were off, no, we were getting to show a film, we don't really do that, we're, we're TV guys, we don't really get to go to theatres and show films to audiences who clap and ask you questions afterwards and make you feel, wow, that was, that was an interesting thing. But the thing that Chris said, that there was a question from the audience that said, well, you know, and maybe several people asked this, it feels like an obvious question, but uh, well, you know, you you watched these tapes and you made this story, but like what other stories could you have made from those tapes? Because obviously, you know, you just chose the bits you want. And Chris said a thing and it's so true. He's like, no, that was the story. That was the story. That was the story. There was shitloads of other stuff that isn't in our film, but it was irrelevant. We couldn't have made that film. That wouldn't have been a film to make. We wouldn't have made a film about Terry going to the dentist because everyone goes to the dentist, you know, and he filmed himself going to the dentist. Amazing. But the thing that Terry, the, the truth of those rushes, and this is the philosophical point that I think is really fascinating, is that, you know, we kind of in some way like got it out of the bottle and put it on, on screen. But that was the story. That's, that's what really happened. All that stuff that Terry went through, you know, the, the struggle emotionally with losing his mom and the need to hold things and, the, you know, his childlike simplicity. This is who he is. He really is this person. And that is why... He's, I mean, it's funny because people go, oh, he couldn't be, it couldn't be a true film because he's so strange. And, and it's not, it's the other way around. It's like, we made a film with him because he's so strange and amazing. You know, he wouldn't just make a film about any guy who happens to have a camera. Well, I think that's a beautiful point to end on, which is, I think what you're saying is, finally, the film knew what it wanted to be. And it told you guys what it wanted to be and you conjured it. Yeah, the film was that film. And it's like, you know, it's like the classic thing of a, of a statue being in a block of stone, right? I mean, you know, the skill of the sculptor is to, is to make it, is to reveal it. And, you know, and yeah, you could have had, had it could have had three arms, not two arms. But this film, it, we, we were telling a true story. And so we were quite constrained by what we could do. And it looks crazy with hindsight. It looks like that is a, how would you have begun to make that film? Well, we didn't. We set out to do something and it ended up being that film. And I think, yeah, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to do ourselves down because, you know, we worked hard and, you know, and there were there were points along the path where we weren't quite sure. Often there were times we weren't sure how, what was going to happen next or how this was going to play out. But fundamentally, 
we just told, you know, we did what all good documentaries do. We just told a really interesting, true story um, that we were well, fortunate to Well, you told it well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for your time and for sharing the process, you know, for all, for all the fans, myself, you know, chief among them. It's so interesting to have the opportunity to sit there with the, with the creators, particularly with the passage of time and sort of have you elucidate how it came into the world. So, so grateful for your time uh, and so grateful for the, for, the, for the film. It's a work of art. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. To be continued, my friend. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. And thank you to Jamie DeCruz for producing a beautiful and unforgettable film. Thank you to Banksy for masterminding the effort. And thank you to Mr. Brainwash. Good hustle, Haas. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound, magic, and mix comes from Nathaniel, post-up audio in Los Angeles. Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe, and thanks for listening.